electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Uh, today, stocks are coming off the worst day in over a year. The Nasdaq setting that new low for 22. We're going to take up the pain in tech stocks and specifically the mega cap names now getting hit hard. Then Google adds Mandy into the portfolio. What that means for Alphabet for big tech M&A and other cybersecurity names. Later on, an exclusive interview with the Block co-founder not named Jack on fintech investment. Surprise, he likes Bitcoin as well. And we are awaiting the president set to make some remarks on the ongoing crisis in Ukraine and expected to announce a ban on Russian energy. When that starts, we will take you there live, D. Well, for now, let's stick with Google this morning, officially announcing plans to acquire cybersecurity company Mandiant for $5.4 billion or 23 bucks a share. Since reports of a potential sale first started on February 8th, shares have increased nearly 50 percent. The deal comes as cybersecurity M&A continues to heat up. According to Security Week, 2021 saw 430 deals in the space, including 11 for more than a billion dollars just last month, 35 more were announced. Mandiant will join Google's cloud computing division, led by Thomas Kurian. This morning, other names in the sector are falling. Yesterday, Fortinet announced it was suspending Russian operations. So you do see Palo Alto networks up about a third of 1%. Uh, John, we talk often about the antitrust element of this. And when we were talking about this a few months ago in the context of reports that Microsoft was maybe looking at Mandiant, uh, not as much concern, but we know that Alphabet is under more scrutiny. So uh, clearly they think they have a chance of getting this across and it will make their cloud offering more compelling, which has sort of lagged the kind of services in the cloud that perhaps Azure and AWS have. Well, yeah, this is one of those areas where Alphabet and Google have not been under so much scrutiny in the cloud. Uh, They're not dominant there, though they have been making significant gains. Uh, It's more on the search side of the house where they've had more scrutiny and the advertising side. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, February 8th being when some rumors about Mandiant first started uh, swirling. Uh, a week after that, uh, I-, I sat down with Thomas Curian uh, in a Fort Knox stream and asked him specifically about M&A, given that valuations uh, of so many tech companies had come down significantly over the past few weeks and months, uh, asking him if now is the time to take advantage of some deals. Here's what he said. Not saying you're going to buy, but boy, wouldn't it be easier to? We're trying to determine, John, which houses make sense. To your example, houses are cheaper. Should we buy a house or not? I mean, you know, we've not said we will. We've not said we won't. But we are, we've shown that all the mechanics you need uh, to scale a business, distribution, integration of the product into a large customer base. All of that we built organically. 
this is important, Carl, not just in the context of security and not just uh, marking what Thomas Curian has been able to do with Google Cloud, but one of the criticisms from kind of within Google before Curian took over was, boy, they're not getting the green light from Ruth Porat from, from the rest of Alphabet Management to do significant M&A. Well, mm. now they are. This is pretty significant at over $5 billion. Yep. Uh, people are trying to say, all right, we got a deal over at Amazon for MGM, a deal at Microsoft for Activision. Uh, this is a little bit different in that it's more related to security, uh, John, but it, it is interesting. We've spent the last couple of years trying to get into the heads of regulators, and it does seem like the conversation changes when you're worried about tech dominance. It doesn't sound quite as bad if you can build a national security conversation around that. For Good sure. Point. For sure. Uh, meanwhile, Fang off to a rough start in 2022. Meta and Netflix down more than 40 percent. Amazon and Microsoft seeing losses of closer to 20 percent. Apple and Alphabet holding up a bit better. And that's where we will start with our Mike Santoli this morning. Mike. Hey, John. Yeah, you know, of course, you know, Meta and Netflix, you have company specific drivers of that downside. The rest of the Nasdaq 100, the rest of Fang, mostly just having this bit of a hangover after massive uh, valuation expansion last year. And Apple really uh, distinguishing itself here as a relative haven. Uh, it is down, you know, 12, 13 percent off its high, but much less than the overall market. In terms of valuation, just looking at, you know, the forward price earnings multiples, you know, Apple shot up to uh, about 34. It's now down to about 25. That's still basically the pre-COVID peak. That's exactly the case for the rest of these. You're buying balance sheet with Apple, obviously. It kind of borrows at, you know, favored sovereign nation uh, rates. And, and also it's free of a lot of the other concerns, I think, that you're talking about uh, when it comes to, you know, whether it's enter enterprise spending, you might have some doubts about, but then regulatory uh, stuff as well. The, be the key question is, can it remain so? There are some folks out there saying, look, when you get the NASDAQ down 20 percent, uh, you pretty much have to have a lot of uh, the leaders also suffer and have their own little reset lower. We'll see if that happens to be uh, the case right now. Uh, but obviously, the uh, uh, Apple, as it has news today, is, uh, is sort of the, the favored destination for people looking for safety. Mike, appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Mike Santoli, that's where our feed's going to go this morning. Our first guest this hour uh, bought more Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet following the dip and is bullish on all of the fang names at these levels except for Netflix. Joining us this morning, the so-called dean of valuation, NYU's Aswath Demoter. And, Professor, good to have you back. Good morning. Uh, good morning. All right. So why, what about the glass are you seeing that is half full? Well, I, think, I mean, I don't think there'll be any debate from anybody that these are all great businesses. They've got no, almost no debt, huge cash balances, solid pricing power, and they're cash machines. I think the question always was at, the, at what price would you get in? And uh, when I valued them three weeks ago, I, I think I found three overvalued and three undervalued, but that was three weeks ago. And in the last three weeks, prices have dropped enough that two of those three have made it into my portfolio. So at the right price, I think these companies are great additions to a long-term portfolio. It doesn't mean in the short term that you won't have some pain. But I think in the long term, I'd rather have these companies than pretty much any consumer product company because uh, of the combination of good stuff that they bring to my portfolio. Interesting. Uh, it now, is the most recent re-rating lower, do you think, uh, being pinned to a, a black swan event uh, related to what we're seeing around the world? 
I think that's, you know, um, part of it is that black swan event, the worry that this could be, a, you know, something potentially catastrophic that's uh, that's hanging over. Part of it is I think investors are getting a chance to reassess. I've always said that corrections come with catalysts. And sometimes the catalysts are distant and sometimes the near. And I think that this might be an occasion for people to take a look and ask, what the heck have we been doing? Because pushing up the prices of some of these companies to levels, I mean, you can take the Zooms and the, um, and the Pelotons of the world and think about how much we pushed up the pricing. And sometimes you need a reminder that you, you've overdone things. And I think investors are using this as a chance of cleaning up some past mistakes. Oswath, good morning. It's Deirdre. Uh, you'd rather have some of the big tech names than any others and sort of the consumer facing names. But, you know, are you really going to make the same kind of returns as Apple going to double again or Microsoft? I wonder, what do you think for some of the higher growth names where there may be earlier opportunity or has that already been washed out in the valuation compressions we've seen over the last few months? You know what? In this market, I'll take a 10 percent return every year. To me, that would be a good return. I think reaching for companies that are going to double, I think, is a pathway to making mistakes here. I think when the market's priced on six, seven percent returns, if you can make a 10 percent return on these tech companies, that'll be amazing. I'll take that. Aswath, and what about M&A? You know, we're talking about some of these names that have held up better than others. Alphabet being uh, one of those, though it had a, a rough go uh, for a while before that as well. And it, it's snapping up Mandiant for just over $5 billion if this goes through, as they hope it will. Um, what's the significance of some of the more dramatic drops we've seen, perhaps, in software and enterprise software and some of these larger cash-rich companies having resources? Is, is M&A part of what's going to drive that 10% return that you're hoping to see? Uh, yes, and, and you can make money on the other side, too. I'm a, I happen to own Peloton, not because I have great belief that they can turn their business model quickly, but because I think they're going to get acquired. That I think you know many of these promising tech companies from last year and two years ago that were selling at you know premium prices are now at prices where... I mean, let's face it, with that, with $200 billion in your balance sheet, like Apple does, if they wanted to, they could buy just about anybody they want. So I think that some of this 10% return is going to be come from snapping up companies at bargain basement prices. Professor, how, what do you think, how, how does the risk premium differ uh, within technology between names that are highly reliant on uh, raw materials from uh, dangerous parts of the world and those that are less, less exposed to that supply chain? I you know I, I work out an implied equity risk premium. The risk premium for uh, emerging markets collectively has increased by about two percent across markets in the just in the last three weeks. That's an immense movement. Doesn't sound like much for uh, over a short period. So I think where what we're seeing again is this particular crisis is leading to a reassessment of risk premiums across the board. You're seeing it in high yield bonds. You're seeing it in VC required returns. So I think you're going to see again, it's a chance for people to look at what they've been doing and asking, have we been demanding enough of a premium? So you're seeing those premiums increase and that is going to affect the pricing of companies that are exposed to these countries. Aswath, I would love to know your thoughts on the EV space and valuations. You know, Lucid and Rivian have had tough goes in the markets, issues with manufacturing, pricing. But in the long term, right, when we see oil prices at these levels and demand for EVs increasing, where are they properly valued, do you think? I think that, you know, I call this the big market illusion. We all agree that electric cars are going to be a much bigger share of the automobile market. I don't think there's any argument about that. 
we all agree that some of the new companies out there, Tesla, of course, being one of the older of these companies, is going to have a big chunk of the market. In fact, I did a little exercise where I took all of these EV companies and I estimated what their revenues would need to be 10 years out to justify their pricing. And then I added up all the revenues. And the problem I'm facing is you need 120% market share of a market that, you know, even if every car sold is an electric car, the question you've got to ask is where are all these cars going to be sold that can justify all these companies being priced at the levels they are? So collectively, I think that they're overvalued. Doesn't mean every one of them is overvalued, but I think that collectively people are just using that big market argument and being a little lazy about asking micro questions. In general, I think um, macro investing, when you tell a big story about AI or cloud or uh, EV and that invest in every company in that space, it's a recipe for disaster. And and how much of this, Aswath, do you think is people valuing one company based on another instead of based on fundamentals. It feels to me like a lot of these are, oh, well, look how well Tesla's doing. Well, here's the next Tesla. Never bothering to ask, well, why is Tesla valued that way in the first place? Should it be? Is it unique? Um, Has that been going on? And if so, what unravels that? In fact, I call it pricing. And that's why I draw a contrast between valuing something and pricing something. And you're absolutely right. People price companies. They don't value them. And I I remember when Nikola first came out, I said, Nikola exists to make Tesla look cheap. And I was just only half joking when I said that, because I think when all you do is have tunnel vision and all you're looking at are EV companies and you're comparing them to each other, after a while you lose all perspective. And I think 95% of people who claim to be value investors are really price investors. They're pricing. And when you're doing pricing, you're going to lose perspective very quickly. So I I think that, again, you need a moment of reckoning. And I think we're on to that moment right now. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Uh, Professor, great to have you. Appreciate uh, the guidance this morning. We'll talk to you soon. As well. Thank you. And we are still awaiting the president. We'll take you live to the White House when those remarks start. More tech check in just a moment. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Quick gut check on a pair of upgrades this morning. First up, Dell. Evercore moves it to outperform, says the recent pullback is your entry point. Calls guidance too conservative as well. Price target there is 60. Then there is Okta. Mizuho upgrades it to a buy today. The stock is down more than 40% over the last six months. Strong organic growth and that dip in valuation, the chief catalyst behind the firm's optimism. Price target there is 225, currently trading at about 158. John? Yeah, and now let's turn to Apple, uh, having its first big product event of the year just two hours from now. Peak Performance, P-E-E-K, is the title of it. 
new iPhones and iPads expected. Maybe some new Macs and displays with us now and what to expect. Our new Apple reporter, Steve Kovac, as well as the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Cern. Uh, welcome, guys. Joanna, I- I've been thinking about this event. Tell me if, if you think this is right or not. In terms of defense and offense, in a way, the iPhone SE and the iPad Air feel a little bit more like defense to me because they're not the flagship in those lines. The margin dollars aren't really there. But then if we get new M1, even M2 Max, that's where Apple's really playing offense in the PC market. Uh, What do you think is leading in what we might hear about today? John, did you ask me this and not Steve, because you know I'm not a sports person? I I, I think I get it, though. Um, I totally agree with you on the defense, on the iPhone SE especially, right? This is to get people at this lower cost, right, $399, into the Apple ecosystem, those who have been holding on to their older phones, I call this phone, the iPhone SE, the I hate change phone. So this is for the people who just want to hold on to that home button, like the smaller screen, don't want to spend $1,000 or more on a more premium phone. Obviously, today, a lot of people looking at 5G coming to that phone, as I've said on this show before. And, John, I'm I'm ready for you to hit me back. But 5G (laughs) is not a reason to upgrade. 5G carrier deals are a reason to upgrade. And so I think we're going to see that, obviously, also moving this phone ahead And on the Macs, I totally agree. Offense, right? They are really hitting Intel and the other PC makers where it hurts with these M1, possibly M2 chip that we're going to hear about today. Just, you know, I'm on one of those computers right now. It is fast. It it runs really cool. The battery life is great. All these things that the other PC manufacturers are just struggling to figure out. Steve, what do you see as most important here on the business side for the investors who are thinking about Apple here, especially as we get closer to WWDC, where we get a look at the software innovation that that Apple expects to build into the next iPhones. What kind of signals are most important? Yeah, honestly, all the skepticism about 5G, well warranted, and Joanna is totally right about that. But what we do know is it moves phones. It spurred the last catalyst of a super cycle of the iPhone, And now they get a chance to see if that can translate over to the lower end of the market. And to Joanna's point, look, they're going after the lower end of the market, which only had 5% market share on the iPhone side versus all those cheap Android phones we have. So putting out a new 5G-capable phone really has that kind of marketing swag that they need to kind of convince people maybe to upgrade from a cheaper Android phone. And that's how they get those users ahead of all those software updates you just talked about. As we know, they like to pack in more services on top of these phones to just squeeze as much out as they can. Yeah, bringing more people into the ecosystem, sort of similar, Joanna, to what you were saying. Um, but there's, is there a bit of a narrative violation here? I mean, since the SE's debut, the top three markets have been the U.S., Japan, and Western Europe. How does it get into other markets where iPhones may be less represented versus the budget Android models? Yeah, no, I and I think people underestimate how popular that phone is in the U.S. market, again, because people hate change and people want to hold on to that home button. There's a reason that they still keep making this old phone. And I really do think it is to hit that market as well in the U.S. But to to answer your question about broadening now to other emerging markets and beyond that uh, price, right, there's certainly been some thoughts about them bringing down the price from three ninety nine to two ninety nine. I'm not sure we're going to see that today. I think this gives the Apple that sort of that 399 spot. It gives the carriers, at least again in the U.S., the ability to bring down that price with deals. Um, I think beyond that, when people think about emerging markets, 
They can also think about this sort of step in. So where the AirPods or the watch also sort of sweeten the deal. But um, yeah, I, I, I can't tell you exactly how Apple's thinking. How is this SE going to get them deeper into these countries where they haven't been as successful? That's interesting, Steve. And, you know, we, we continue to look for signals as to how they're going to make the ecosystem even stickier uh, when it comes to, say, for example, fitness. There's been a lot of speculation about what they could do on that front. And then you have to hand it to them uh, the progression of quality and certainly notoriety of Apple TV has really taken off, I would argue, say, in the last three or four months. Yeah, that, that's totally true. I mean, we know Tim Cook loves to talk about those Apple TV shows. I mean, you can't even at the investors uh, meeting last week. He was just bragging about all the Emmys and Oscar nominations that they've racked up. So that's kind of like a, a nice little fun trophy for Tim Cook to brag about. But it's not the core of the thing we're paying attention to. And, and just speak while you're talking about TV, we can't really uh, forget about this other thing that's been rumored is this smart monitor or some kind of interesting new take on a desktop computer monitor that that's been rumored for the last couple of days. Um, I'm going to be really interested. That could be the dark horse here. I'm going to be really interested to see uh, what that looks like and the case behind that. And Joanna, back, back to I'm Silicon. For the, oh, I'm just waiting for the Ted Lasso re- season three <laughs> release date. I think that's going to be the biggest news of the day. Yes. Indeed, indeed. And uh, <laughs> back to the, the Silicon uh, piece for a moment. Have you ever seen, Joanna, a Silicon transition that has gone this well, this smoothly as, as what uh, Apple's doing from Intel to the M1, et cetera? And no, and honestly, some of it's been disappointing as a reviewer because I wanted to be able to pick at it, right? I wanted, you know, when they announced this in 2021 or it was end of 2022, I just thought it was going to be a nightmare, especially with app compatibility and the thoughts about how iPhone apps were going to run smoothly on the Macs. Now, that didn't really pan out. A lot of people are not porting their iPhone apps to the Mac, or at least if they are, people aren't really running them. But it's smooth. I mean, this this software runs well. I don't get that many emails from readers who are struggling with installing things. Uh, and again, like I've, I've been using an M1 uh, 13-inch MacBook Pro now for about a year and a half, and it's it's running almost as well as it did the first day. You want a better camera, though. I remember that much. Joanna, Steve, thank you. Thank you. We continue to monitor uh, the White House for that appearance by the president. It's going to coincide with this news out of the U.K. that they will also follow suit, although in a slightly different fashion. Kayla Tausche has that for us. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Carl. Well, yes, we just got that news from the U.K. Business and Energy Secretary announcing that by the end of this year, the U.K. will be phasing out the import of Russian oil. It's effectively a ban, but it's not going to be taking part or taking place rather right away. And the Business and Energy Secretary also tweeting that the U.K. is exploring a ban of Russian imports of natural gas as well. So even though the U.S. had been expected to take a standalone effort, we knew that the U.K. was exploring how it could possibly possibly take a similar action while protecting market forces uh, and consumer prices as well. So certainly uh, a feather in the cap of President Biden before he takes the podium here at the White House. And we will see if Japan, which had also been exploring a similar move, uh, will make any announcement to this end as well. Carl. Uh, Meanwhile, Kayla, uh, there continues to be some uh, side activity, I guess, in a House vote related to some of this, right? 
Yes, and certainly the House Ways and Means Committee had been uh, instrumental in reaching a bipartisan agreement to take some action uh, to ban Russian oil, to allow for new tariffs to be placed on Russian goods, and also to revoke the most favored nation status or revoke rather the membership in the World Trade Organization uh, by Russia. So certainly all of those had been part of a bipartisan agreement that had been reached on the Hill, uh, but Democrats had been speaking behind the scenes about letting President Biden uh, make the first announcement, and then they're going to be announcing after Today, that. I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support in the Congress and, I believe, in the country. Americans have rallied support, have rallied to support the Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made, we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. But we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. Our teams are actively discussing how to make this happen, and today we remain united. We remain united in our purpose to keep pressure mounting on Putin and his war machine. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin, but there will be cost as well here in the United States. I said I would level with the American people from the beginning, and when I first spoke to this, I said defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well in the United States. Republicans and Democrats understand alike understand that. Republicans and Democrats alike have been clear that we must do this. Over the last week, I've spoken with President Zelensky several times to hear from him about the situation on the ground and to consult and continue to consult with uh, our European allies and about U.S. support for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Thus far, we've provided more than $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. Shipments of defensive weapons are arriving in Ukraine every day from the United States, and we, the United States, are the ones coordinating the delivery of our allies and partners of similar uh, weapons, from Germany to Finland to the Netherlands. We're, we're, we're working that out. We're also providing humanitarian support for the Ukrainian people, both those still in Ukraine and those who have fled safely to a neighboring country. We're working with humanitarian organizations to surge tens of thousands of tons of food, water, and medical supplies into Ukraine, and with more on the way. Over the weekend, I sent Secretary Blinken to visit uh, our border between the border between Poland and Ukraine and to Moldova to see what the situation was firsthand and report back. General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of our Defense Department, is also what was also in Europe, meeting with his counterparts and allies on NATO's eastern flank to reassure them, those countries bordering Russia, NATO countries, that we will keep our NATO commitment 
a sacred commitment article of Article 5. The Vice President Harris is going to be traveling to meet with our allies in Poland and Romania later this week as well. I've made it clear that the United States will share in the responsibility of caring for the refugees so the costs do not fall entirely on the European countries bordering Ukraine. And yesterday I spoke with my counterparts in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom about Russia's escalating violence against Ukraine and the steps that we're going to take together with our allies and partners around the world to respond to this aggression. We are enforcing the most significant package of economic sanctions in history, and it's causing significant damage to Russia's economy. It has caused Russian economy to fight, frankly, crater. The Russian ruble is now down to 50 percent, by 50 percent since Putin's announced his war. One ruble is now worth less than one American penny. One ruble is less than one American penny. And preventing Russia's central bank from propping up the ruble and to keep its value up. They're not going to be able to do that now. We cut the Russians' largest banks from the international financial system and it's crippled their ability to do business with the rest of the world. In addition, we're choking off Russia's access to technology like semiconductors that are and uh, and sap its uh, its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. Major companies are pulling out of Russia entirely without even being asked, not by us. Over the weekend, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, they all suspended their services in Russia, all of them, joining a growing list of American and global companies from Ford to Nike to Apple. They've suspended their operations in Russia. The U.S. stock exchange has halted trading of many Russian securities. The private sector is united against Russia's vicious war of choice. The U.S. Department of Justice has assembled a dedicated task force to go after Russian, the crimes of Russian oligarchs. And we're joining with our European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets, and all their ill-begotten gains to make sure that they share in the pain of Putin's war. These, by the way, are giant yachts. You put some of them in your press. I mean, some of them are, I think I've read one was over 400 feet long. I mean... It's uh, this is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, 30 billion, million, excuse me, is coming from the United States. And we're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. We're also going to keep working with every tool at our disposal to protect American families and businesses. Now, let, me, let me say this. To the oil and gas companies and to the finance firms that back them, we understand Putin's war against the people of Ukraine is causing prices to rise. We get that. That's self-evident. But, 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 it's no excuse to exercise excessive price increases or padding profits or any kind of effort to exploit this situation or, Amer- or American uh, consumers. Exploit them. Russia's aggression is costing us all. And it's no time for profiteering or price gouging. I want to be clear about what we'll not tolerate. 
But I also want to acknowledge those firms and oil and gas industries that are pulling out of Russia and joining other businesses that are leading by example. This is a time when we have to do our part and make sure we're not taking we're not taking advantage. Look, let me be clear about uh, two other points. First, it's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. That's simply not true. Even amid the pandemic, companies in the United States pumped more oil during my first year in office than they did during my predecessor's first year. We're approaching a record levels of oil and gas production in the United States, and we're on track to set a record oil production next year. In the United States, 90 percent of onshore oil production takes place on land that isn't owned by the federal government. And of the remaining 10 percent that occurs on federal land, the oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. We should be honest about the facts. Second, this crisis is a stark reminder. To protect our economy over the long term, we need to become energy independent. I've had numerous conversations over the last three months with our European friends of how they have to be, wean themselves off of Russian oil. It's just not it's just not tenable. It should motivate us to accelerate the transition to clean energy. This is a perspective that our European allies share and the future where together we can achieve greater independence. Loosening environmental regulations or pulling back clean energy investment won't. Let me explain. Won't. Will not lower energy prices for families. But transforming our economy to run on electric vehicles powered by clean energy with tax credits to help American families winterize their homes and use less energy, that will. That will help. And if we can, if we do what we can, it will mean that no one has to worry about the price of the gas pump in the future. That'll mean tyrants like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. And it will make America a world leader, manufacturing and exporting clean energy technologies of the future to countries all around the world. This is the goal we should be racing toward. Over the last two weeks, Ukrainian people have inspired the world. And I mean that in a literal sense. They've inspired the world with their bravery, their patriotism, their defiant determination to live free. Putin's war, Putin's war has caused enormous suffering and needless loss of life of women, children, everyone in Ukraine, both Ukraine and, I might add, Russians. Ukrainian leaders, as well as leaders around the world, have repeatedly called for a ceasefire, for humanitarian relief, for real diplomacy. But Putin seems determined to continue on his murderous path, no matter the cost. Putin's now targeting cities and has been targeting cities and civilians, schools, hospitals, apartment buildings. Last week, he attacked the largest nuclear power plant in Europe with an apparent disregard for the potential of triggering a nuclear meltdown. He has already turned two million Ukrainians into refugees. Russia may continue to grind out its advance at a horrible price, but this much is already clear. Ukraine will never be a victory for Putin. Putin may be able to take a city, but he'll never be able to hold the country. And if we do not respond to Putin's assault on global 
peace and stability today, the cost of freedom, and to the American people, will be even greater tomorrow. So we're going to continue to support the brave Ukrainian people as they fight for their country. And I call on Congress to pass the $12 billion Ukraine assistance package that I have asked them for uh, of late. Ukrainian people are demonstrating by their physical courage that they are not about to just let Putin take what he wants. That's clear. They'll defend their freedom, their democracy, their lives. And we're going to keep providing security assistance, economic assistance, and humanitarian assistance. We're going to support them against tyranny, oppression, violent acts of subjugation. People everywhere, and I, I think it's maybe even surprised some of you all, people everywhere are speaking up for freedom. And when the history of this war is written, Putin's war on Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. And God bless all those heroes in Ukraine. And now I'm off to Texas. Thank you very, very much. I know there's a lot of... I know, I know there's a lot of questions, but there's a lot more that has to be made clear, and I'm going to hold on that until we get more information. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is the president announcing the U.S. ban on Russian oil and gas, uh, pointing out the economic pressure that's already been put on Russia. He threw in there some of the economic sanctions we know about and a lot of the self-sanctioning that's been going on by corporate America, the likes of some payment processors over the weekend from American Express and Visa. And then Kayla Tausche defending uh, U.S. energy policy, pointing out that uh, more is going to be produced this year than in Trump's first year. And I did notice at one point calling this Putin's price hike, referring to gasoline. Yes, he has been laying the blame at the foot of Vladimir Putin multiple times in those remarks, Carl. And he made a point to say that uh, that prices at the pump will not go down by underinvesting in renewable energy and went on to uh, promote some of the policies, the clean energy policies and the green tax credits uh, that his administration has been putting forward. He did reiterate that there will be a cost for the American people as part of this conflict in Ukraine, uh, even though privately I know that the White House and the American Petroleum Institute believe that because of that significant run up in oil already, that perhaps the announcement of the American ban coupled with the phase in of the UK ban and the efforts by Europe to at least wean itself off of Russian energy by the end of this year, that the gradual nature of those should at least put a lid on price hikes uh, roughly where they are now. That is what I what I believe, according to conversations uh, with sources about just the significant price action that we've seen so far. It was also interesting, Carl, to hear President Biden talk to corporate America directly and say that even though it is becoming more more expensive, uh, essentially, to obtain the energy that, that you may need, that price gouging is not okay. And that speaks to the fact that among the, uh, the options that the administration has weighed, a federal, a cut in the federal gas tax, or a suspension, rather, of that gas tax, when I talk to sources about why that does not appear to be an attractive option, it's because the White House and Democrats on the Hill aren't confident that corporations would necessarily pass that a tax break along to consumers and it might not actually have any impact. So the administration wants to speak directly to corporate America and say, uh, do not price gouge, do not hike your prices beyond what supply and demand uh, require. Uh, and certainly they are continuing to evaluate their options beyond that strategic petroleum reserve release that has been done already and beyond some of the other options that, at least for the time being, Carl, it seems that they are not going to be pursuing. Hey, Kayla. Uh 
morning. It's John. What are you hearing about the medium term domestic political impact uh, of what's happening, particularly when it comes to energy policy? You hear the, the president there trying to thread the needle, uh, saying, hey, there's plenty of room to, to drill here onshore. Companies have the uh, ability to do that. And then at the same time, we need to accelerate the move to clean energy. But I, I feel like there's this uh, groundswell or at least louder movement of people saying, well, there was too much emphasis on clean energy to begin with and not enough recognition that for the time being, fossil fuels are necessary and uh, energy independence is necessary. How does that affect the uh, election cycle coming up? It's a good question, John, and it is a needle that the administration has tried to thread very delicately so far. But there is going to be uh, a moment coming up where the administration is going to have to develop its own identity on energy policy. The Department of the Interior is expected to put out a five-year plan with regard to drilling, leasing, and permitting in the United States. Uh, you know, that work is starting, but... The, the White House and the executive branch is going to have to figure out exactly uh, what it wants to say about how drilling and leasing and permitting activities should proceed in the United States for a period of time that even extends beyond uh, a potential first term of an administration. We don't know exactly which way the administration is leaning on that, but certainly that is going to be determinative and it's going to it's going to wield a lot of criticism uh, once it eventually comes out. Kayla, the president talked about corporations leading policy in some cases from refiners without a sanction to the payments processors. Uh, what about the remaining companies that have not yet suspended operations in Russia, like Coca-Cola and McDonald's? Does the pressure on them continue to rise? I think the pressure continues to rise, but Dee, you've heard a lot of those consumer goods companies say, like Procter & Gamble, for instance, say, we're not going to invest more in Russia, but we have to continue to supply basic services and needs to the people who are still living in Russia, who they are not the ones who have brought on this war. Uh, how that capex flows from here remains to be seen. But one of the things that you will see is Congress, in short order, is going to be uh, is going to be essentially voting and approving uh, for the U.S. to be able to put tariffs on Russian goods, some of these goods that are not directly impacted by sanctions. And so how the White House and how the Hill decides to proceed on some of those potential tariffs could also impact companies that are not otherwise swept up in the sanctions that have been announced. Yeah. Also interesting, Kayla, to see him defer for now any criticism of, say, dividends and buybacks at the expense of CapEx. Maybe that's something that we'll hear about down the road. Uh, who knows? Our Kayla Tausche in Washington. Kayla, thanks. Obviously, oil prices are jumping again today on the news. It's the perfect time for the lineup at Sarah uh, this week. Brian Sullivan's been talking to Hess today. Oxy did speak, and he's got another special guest. Hey, Brian. Hey, Carl. Thank you very much. Yeah, we are very pleased to be joined by Ryan Lance. He is the chairman and CEO of ConocoPhillips. I mean, just kind of uh, unfortunate, uh, incredible, sad, weird timing to have everything happening here as everything is happening geopolitically. Uh, I know you were inside giving a talk. You did not hear the president directly, Ryan. Right. Uh, he basically said, we're going to ban Russian oil, talked about your industry. Uh, immediately, what is your reaction to the ban on Russian oil imports? Yeah, they, you know, the administration and some of the Congress uh, were talking a little bit about this last week, so we had a chance to get prepared. I think it's a rational thing to do in the short term. We've got to send a message to the Russians. I think the U.S. will equilibrate its system rather quickly, have minimal kind of impact. The real question beyond that is what, what do the rest of the country, what do the rest of the world do with respect to Russian exports? And that can have a huge impact on this system if a million or two million 
million barrels a day are taken off the market. The UK, the UK, again, it just all just happening, Ryan. I know you're on a panel. The UK saying they are going to ban Russian yep. imports, not just of crude oil, but also of refined of products. products things like naphtha and biofuels, et cetera. We'll see if others do. If, if the major powers, the Jap, Japans of the world, Europe, UK, us, ban Russian imports, what happens to the price of oil? Well, I think if uh, you know the, a larger part of the world starts to ban, we take a million or two million a day off the market, it's going to send the prices even higher. That, that's coming. Higher than 127? Uh, higher than today's prices. I don't know what today's trading at right now, but absolutely, if you take another million or two off the market, the price is going to continue to go up. That's how thinly balanced the system is today. And, uh, and all eyes are looking at the OPEC Plus group or the OPEC group, how much spare capacity is there. To, uh, to satisfy that demand if we take the supply off the market. Well, we know there is not a lot, but there may be some OPEC+. Plus. Right. We chat. We're lucky to, to, to talk to some of them. The, the Secretary General of OPEC is here, Mohammed Barkindo. Mohammed, if you're around, please come on over. <laughs> um, do you think the Saudis have the ability to put more oil on the market well, right I now? Well, I think they, not in the short term. I think, again, it's just a longer-term question. And, and that's the one message I would have for the administration today is I know we're focused on the short term and trying to resolve, send a message to uh, Mr. Putin and what's going on in Ukraine, but we need to be thinking about the medium and the long-term impact. If this lasts for a while and we continue to stop the exports, it's going to have a material impact on the market for a longer period of time, and we need to think about that. John Hess this morning told us that he thinks that the U.S. and the IEA should have a coordinated 120 million barrel release of the SPR next month, another 120 million barrel release the month, so 240 million barrels in two months. I was a little surprised to hear Mr. Hess say that. Would you agree with that? Well, I think it, you know, it can help alleviate the short term. But again, Brian, the, the longer term, it's really a question of what are we going to do for the next six months? What are we going to do for the next year? And are we planning enough to say what are the scenarios that could develop over that period of time? And what are we going to do to ensure energy security as a country and as a globe? And releases out of the SPR for a month or two or three, they'll help the short term. And they're necessary to do that. But they don't answer this longer term question. The, the, the president in his talk, and again, I know I want I want to be clear, people just joining us, you did not hear it, you're in a panel. Thank you for graciously kind of hustling out here. The president did throw the ball back in your court. He said the, the your industry is sitting on something like 9,000 leases of federal lands. You're shaking your head that you, he's basically telling the American people you guys should be or could be drilling more. Um, I'll let you respond. It's not how it works. You don't just tomorrow so give us the idea of yeah. how this actually occurs. So I tell the president it's a terrible talking point, Brian. Let's let's get off got get off that. What we need to focus Why on. Why is it a terrible talking? Point? Well, because uh, we have leases. They take a long time to develop. We'll drill on those leases when when the opportunity when we do the geologic work, when we do the engineering work. We understand where to go drill. Then we go drill those leases, and they come up. So you got to have a pipeline of leases to perpetuate the business over the long haul. So there's always going to be some leases that are undrilled. That's not the measure of what this industry is doing. To Today, we'll grow probably this year from entry to exit eight to 900,000 barrels a day. The industry will grow in the U.S. by eight to 900,000. You look forward to next year probably going to grow that similar amount. And if these prices persist, there's going to be plenty of money to invest into capital and still generate the adequate returns yep. we need to run in the business and give returns of capital back to our shareholders. Because at the, and so I talked to Scott Sheffield earlier today offline. He will be on our special tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And, I, and I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Scott, if I could, yeah. which is if you called your board today, you heard the president, you call your board right now after we get offline and you say, let's pump more oil, let's go for it. 
from that moment until the first drop of new oil comes out of the ground is eight to twelve months. Eight to, eight to twelve months. So it's not that quick. So again, that's why we have to be thinking about the medium and the longer term here to try to decide. We're spending twenty percent more capital this year than we did last year. We're going to grow our production this year over what we produced last year. Now, if we want to grow even faster. We can put some more capital to go work. We've got to make sure the returns are there. We're dealing with the same inflation and supply chain every other manufacturer is dealing with in the U.S. So we've got to make sure the returns are there in the business. And we have to look forward, 12, to your point, we have to look forward 12 months. What's the price going to be in 12 months to generate the adequate return? And talk on the to us about, today? so Vicki Holub of Occidental, also again, cheap tease, Ryan. Sorry, is on our special tonight. But on a panel, she said supply chains are really hurting her company, Occidental. Nickel was halted. And I bring up nickel because it's the main ingredient in steel production. You use a lot of steel to drill. How much are all these other things, labor, frac sand, water, steel cost, impacting your ability to grow? Yeah, no, it does. And to your point, if you're in the U.S. Permian Basin, which is the hot spot right now, the best, biggest field in the United States, you're seeing double-digit kind of inflation rates. And it's those commodities, those categories of spends, land, saber, truck driving, uh, chemicals that come out of BASF in Europe. So it's all those supply chain issues are impacting our ability. So the question is, the price is high enough to sort of incentivize more capital to go in and grow, but we have to watch the returns. We're just like any other business. we got to make sure that the capital we spend generates an adequate return for our shareholders. Final question. I want to end on an optimistic note because a lot of scary stuff going on in Ukraine. 1.7 million refugees people dying. Let's say the war ends tomorrow. Let's all pray it does. Okay, Putin's stupid war, unwinnable war, ends tomorrow. What happens to the price of oil? We fall to 80? Well, there's probably, you know, a 10 to $20 geopolitical premium built into the price today. That's obvious what's going on. But, you know, before this crisis started, the macro was tending to be in the 80s and the 90s already, just based on the supply-demand balances that we're seeing, because the world's growing back out of the pandemic. So the growth is coming, and the lack of investment on the supply side is creating this situation that was born out of a couple of years ago. And it's going to take a while to get out of this situation as well. Really important points at a really important time to have you and your voice on, Ryan Lance, Chairman and CEO of ConocoPhillips. Thanks for rolling with everything. A hell of a time. Ryan, thank you. Thank you, Brian. John, send it back to you. Brian, so timely. Thank you. And next, a rare exclusive interview with the co-founder of Wox. More Tech Check in a moment. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. 
Our next guest co-founded Square, now known as Block, with Jack Dorsey more than a decade ago. He joins us now with his outlook for both the payment space and crypto. Of course, joining us now is Block co-founder Jim McKelvey. Jim, it's great to have you with us this morning. Let's start with Bitcoin, where Dorsey has put so much of his and Block's focus. Do you think that this can backfire or is it all upside? Well, I mean, it's not all upside. We don't exactly know what's going to happen. But Bitcoin looks like a very important technology and we're uh, exploring it. So, Jim, yourself, are you a Bitcoin maximalist? And do you think that at least Dorsey's potentially could hurt the company's ability to capture to capture a wider growing crypto audience? Well, Bitcoin has uh, some very unique properties right now. And I personally own some Bitcoin. And I think it's uh, unique primarily because it's very decentralized and uh, there's no sort of central uh, entity that's that's telling us what to do. It's this community. And it's the response from the community that's actually more exciting uh, than the currency itself. Hmm. So are you a maximalist then? Like Dorsey? I, I, no, 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 no. I'm not a maximalist. Um, I do own some. I mean, but I own a lot of other stuff, too. OK, so then do you think that Dorsey's strategy of all in on Bitcoin and not looking at some of the other tokens, do you think that limits the opportunities for Block when you have a Coinbase, for example, looking into things like an NFT platform and investment DAOs, broader Web3 focus versus that Bitcoin maximalist focus? So I, I'm not going to speak for Jack. I really respect Jack's vision as having seen these trends early. If you look at what Jack has been able to do consistently over the last decade is he's been right early more often than not. Uh, so I uh, am really happy that he's uh, continuing to make calls like that. Uh, OK, Jim, let's look at the broader payment space then. Uh, disruption seems to be a given. We saw huge run ups in a lot of these companies from Block to SoFi to Coinbase and others. Um, but it seems like the market has decided that this disruption is going to take longer, be bumpier, especially when it comes to regulation. Do you think that that's the case? How do you see sort of valuations right now and that the sort of coming down that we have seen over the last few months? Uh, you know, honestly, I haven't looked at the stock price in Eight months, nine okay. months. I honestly don't know. Price, Somebody Jim, I'm not asking up. you about the stock price. I'm asking you about the <laughs> no. ability to disrupt and the sector as a whole. Um, I think we are continuing to come out with some some pretty shockingly cool products. Um, I'm particularly excited about Cash App. I'm uh, uh, very interested in what TBD is doing, which is our crypto area. Uh, and Afterpay, uh, my wife actually uses it uh, all the time. So I'm I'm very excited about the product line. Is that the question or I don't? It, no, it was more disruption overall and potentially unseating some of the legacy payments players like Visa and MasterCard. What role crypto has to play? What role buy now, pay later has to play? Um, do you think that, that that disruption is taking longer to happen than perhaps initially thought? Oh, no, 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 no. So the rate of disruption is actually increasing. If you look at what's happening in payments, uh, we're getting uh, innovation on innovation on innovation, and you're building a uh, increasingly uh, fast rate of disruption throughout the entire market. So if that's your question, yeah, it's happening faster. Uh, I think Block's going to be a significant portion of it, but there are going to be a lot of other companies who are going to be doing amazing stuff, and we don't know what it's all going to be right now. Uh, hi, hi, Jim. It's John Fort. Uh, we could get some word on crypto-related uh, regulation out of D.C. as soon as this week. Uh, what should the Biden administration do? They should take it very seriously. I mean, I think what they should do is uh, give us some rules. 
because one of the things that uh, we know is going to happen is we know the governments are going to regulate. Uh, we just don't know what these regulations are going to be. And right now you have a lot of innovation that is uh, happening sort of in this vacuum. And we're all worried that the regulation is going to be something uh, that we're not expecting. So uh, the clarity of that regulation will be very helpful to everybody. And Jim, finally, then what do you think of crypto's role in the current uh, crisis that we're seeing in Ukraine? On one hand, it's played an important role in the transfer of money and donations. But on the other hand, there's been a lot of scams and confusion. If this is sort of a testing moment for crypto and Bitcoin, how do you think it's fared? Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot of scams and it's kind of cuts both ways. I mean, we're seeing uh, funding for the Ukraine's uh, struggle and we're also seeing uh, efforts uh, to run around sanctions. So it's uh, it's another variable. And I think it's uh, it's going to be positive and negative um, based on how we use it. Uh, it's kind of too early to tell. Jim McKelvey, thank you. Talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm. One more thing this morning, uh, and that is. The impact of the Ukraine crisis on Europe and specifically cloud companies doing business there are Frank Collins watching that. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Carl. Uh, MongoDB earnings and more importantly, its guidance could be a real inflection point for cloud and enterprise software. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has, has IT leaders, especially in Europe, really rethinking workload management. About 44 percent globally is now on the cloud. But Europe's really lag with less than a third. The security and utility of on-premise software now under a lot more scrutiny. It could be an opportunity for market share gain for companies fighting for that last 15 percent of market share left after AWS and Azure. MongoDB gets about 30 percent of its revenue from EMEA. That's up 50 percent year over year. Oracle gets more than a quarter of revenue from EMEA. SAP more than 44 percent. They saw that rise 23 percent last quarter. ServiceNow nearly a quarter and has seen double-digit increases in that area since the pandemic. Cybersecurity firm Mandiant says cyber attacks and hacks on Western companies and institutions they're just becoming increasingly likely. Google's acquisition of Mania today also expected to create a new landscape for cloud and cybersecurity combinations. Companies like Rapid7 and SailPoint likely to be acquired. Carl, that's the latest. Back over to you. Uh, Frank, appreciate that. Uh, we are not far from the highs of the session, although the Dow was briefly green this morning. We're just south of 4,200. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.